people today and young people today, you, you see them, you know, they have this hunger for truth. And I think that that was something that all of the young members of the White Rose had, this hunger for truth and this hunger for justice. Well, it's a beautiful day here on the Isle of Misfits. I am your co-host, she's Mr. Nancy Carmichael, and joining me today for the third time, because we love her so much around here, is Amanda Barrett. Now, you might remember Amanda from, oh, just a couple of episodes ago when we, we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and she's written books about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. She's written a lot of books, a lot of novellas, and she as you can guess, has written another book called The White Rose Resist. So we're just going to jump right into welcoming you back to the aisle, Amanda. Thank you. It is so great to be here again. Oh, my gosh. It's, you know, every time you come back, it's just so wonderful because I learn more. Uh, you, you are just, you're not just a, a gifted writer, um, but you're, you're an historian. Did I say that correctly? An historian, right? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and you, you're a well-researched historian, and you've done it again. You've researched a story here that I think is, is timely. It's for this hour. It's called The White Rose Resist. So um, we're going to talk about it. Oh, yes, we are. But before we do, I don't know how it is that this is the third time, as I said, the third time that we have talked, and we have yet to discuss a mutual love of the both of us that being Niagara Falls. Yes, I love Niagara Falls. I visited there um, several years ago, and from my visit there was inspired to write my debut novel, My Heart Belongs in Niagara Falls, New York. So it's it's a beautiful place, and I would love to return and visit the Canadian side because I've never been there. Oh, you simply must. So, yeah, so, yeah, you wrote a whole book about it, and I live next door to it. So, hey, anytime you want, come on over. I'll show you. The Canadian side is quite beautiful. I'm going to tell you this. The city, the Canadian side is a prettier city. I say this as an American, but I believe the American side has the better park. That's just, I'm just saying, that's all I'm saying. Yes, I, lo- I loved visiting the, the whole American side when we were there, and it was just beautiful, just the majesty of it, and it really just captured my imagination, especially as I we w- kind of went through a little museum, and so I was learning about the daredevils, the, the people who ro- went over the falls in barrels or walked across on tightropes, and from there kind of came the inspiration for my novel. Ah, got it. Okay, so so again, you're an historian, so I'm guessing you you have some extensive knowledge uh, in keeping with your your rep as your reputation as a researcher. So today's stupid game, in your honor, if you are still on board with the stupid game tradition, is all about Niagara Falls. So how, how absolutely? How, all right, all right, she's on board. Okay, so this will be quick. First one, multiple choice. All right, you ready? Yep. Okay. A teacher was the first person to go over the falls in a barrel in 1903. How old was that teacher? Was she 17? Was she 23? Or was she 63? She was 63. You are absolutely right. Of course you would know that. So how do you know that? I researched her story. I read a little bit about her story. My story is about a man who walked across the the tightrope. But I did research a little bit the woman who went over in the barrel and it was really fascinating awesome power to the geriatrics all right see it's never too late people not that i'm telling you to do this because you'll get arrested um okay what attraction within the falls because we know all right we know the falls is you know huge tourist attraction but what attraction within the falls is considered the oldest tourist attraction in north america um wasn't it when they went under the falls 
I know that was somewhat early. I'd probably maybe wrong here. That was that was pretty early. You're right, and I don't think you can do that. I mean, you can do the Cave of the Winds, but there's certain things that are closed. But um, all right, so I'm going to give you this one. It was sort of like trick because it's all. I mean, the whole thing is probably the oldest attraction, but the Maid of the Mist is actually the oldest tourist attraction in terms of just a you know a man-made thing within it. So Maid of the Mist, um, and I had the year and. Now I forget, but that's it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yes. Yeah. Have you ever been on the Maid of the Mist? I have not. That's something that I'd love to do if I went back. It's, I've, you know, I, we went and we saw people, you know, going up, across in it and it looked really, really, really fun. Oh my gosh. It really, yes. You simply, simply must, especially if it's a nice hot day. So I would recommend going in the summer um, because it's just so wonderful. And you do, you'll get soaked. Um, another thing. More bonus material. North of the falls is considered the gorge, and that's a beautiful place. You can you can walk above it. You can go down to it, and there's huge boulders, and it's just wild. And they have something called the jet boats, and they're these high-powered boats that go against the current, and it's just like being a little kid. It's so, so much fun. Oh, wow. That sounds really fun, too. Oh, truly is. Yes, you'll scream with delight. So, okay. Last question. Um, true or false? The city of Buffalo, which is just south of the falls, which is pretty much where I live, is actually not named after a buffalo at all, but rather a mispronunciation of a French word for a beautiful river, the Buffalo. Is that true or false? True. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But yeah, okay, so I, I would have given it to you either way because it, it hasn't been confirmed, but if you look it up in Google, again, my engineer husband was the first person that told me this. Legend has it. Uh, they can't confirm if this is true or not true, but that is one of the theories as to where Buffalo got its name. And that beautiful river, Ooh, of course, is, yeah, it is the Niagara River of which we speak. So you did excellent once again, I can't stump this woman. She knows her. She knows her material. She is a researcher. So congratulations and thanks for playing. Fun. I haven't. I've been delved into that aspect because I wrote that novel several years ago. So kind of fun revisiting all of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and I hope you can get up to the falls because it really, really is beautiful. Especially, I've already been up there a couple of times this year, and it's just lovely. Now. It's time for us to talk. So like I said, we wanted, you know, I wanted to talk about something fun and something light um, because the story that I want to get into in just a moment is, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's an inspiring story. But to say that it's a lighthearted story would probably be a little misleading. Um, so let's get into, let's start with the title, The White Rose Resists. So tell us. What was it, the White Rose Society? It was based on them. What was the White Rose Society? So the White Rose was a group of German college students during World War II who resisted the Nazi regime by printing and distributing thousands of leaflets calling for resistance against the German government. And they distributed these leaflets um, both in their city of Munich where they were students and then across Germany and Austria and my novel focuses on Sophie Scholl who was the only woman who was part of the group's core inner circle and I'm so excited to research and share this story with, with readers. So okay so Sophie Scholl, her brother Hans, there was there was there like you said there was a core group of them like maybe about a half a dozen Yes, yes, there was. And then they were assisted by their philosophy professor, Professor Huber, who was the only member of the inner circle who was above um, the age in his 20s. He, this, he was in his like 50s, 60s. 
Okay, so he really acted as their mentor. All right, so they they distribute yes. these. Yeah. So okay, they distribute these pamphlets. Um, and remind us where they were. We know this was in Germany. Um, did we talk about the city where they were? So they were students at the University of Munich, which was a very large university. And the men were all studying medicine, and Sophie was studying biology and philosophy. And when she arrived in Munich in May 1942 to begin her first semester there, after spending two years working for the Reich Labor Service, which she detested, that was kind of when the group began to get going. Okay. And prior to this, so like you said, they were they were just students. They were just, you know, they were doing what young people do, right? They were they were studying, they were, they had careers in mind, they had interests in mind. And they were young, you know, having the interests that young people have, like, you know, interest in, in dating, although they probably didn't call it dating back, you know, or whatever, you know, they, they were interested in, in life and art and fun and, and just friends. So how did it come? And, and they were also pretty well trained in ideology that... Uh, maybe ran counter to the things that they ended up printing. So I'm just interested in their mindset. Like, how did they get to this place of distributing the information that they did? So that is really fascinating because, yes, like you said, um, in the 1930s, Sophie and Hans Scholl were very much involved in the Hitler Youth in the League of German Girls. Um, their father, Robert Scholl, opposed Nazism from the beginning, and he would tell his children, the Nazis are wolves, they're wild beasts, they're out to destroy the German people. But Hans and Sophie were um, swept up in the fact that they could go hiking and camping, and they could um, hang out with their friends, and, and they were being told that, you know, that the, the next generation can make Germany great again. And so they really kind of went along with that until about 1935, when Hans was selected to be a flag there at the Nuremberg rally and so there, surrounded by the parades and the speeches and the grandeur of the Nazi regime, he becomes very disillusioned with the mind-numbing conformity that he sees. And when he returns home, his family notices this difference in him. And from then on, he really begins to turn away from this regime that formerly he embraced. He was never like an ardent um, admirer of the regime, but he was you know, definitely um, involved in this whole Nazi youth organization thing. And then he became involved in a band youth group, the DJ 111, and was actually arrested for being involved in that and spent some time in prison. And what really clinched the family, though, becoming involved in Hans and Sophie wanting to produce leaflets was um, they received a duplicated copy of a sermon um, preached by a man named Bishop Clemens von Galen. Um, and he was preaching, denouncing the Reich euthanasia program, which was murdering thousands of Germans. And when they received this leaflet in their mailbox, Hans um, said to his sister, we really ought to have a duplicating machine of our own. And and so they did. Now, from my understanding, Sophie did not join right away. Um, in fact, uh, just reading through your your story suggests that she didn't even know at first. So, yeah. So tell, give a little bit of background with that. So when it's 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 one of the ambiguous. Um, regarding the White Rose story, when she actually became involved, she gave kind of a couple of different answers in her interrogation um, transcripts, which I read. And But the most likely is that she became involved shortly after she arrived in Munich and discovered that her brother and his close friend, Alexander Schmorell, were actively um, preparing to mount this um, printing and writing and distribution. And she went along and she said that she was going to become involved with this and knowing the consequences. Her father had actually just a few shortly before this um, was faced, was going to be imprisoned and was going to have a trial that August because he had 
in the hearing of his secretary called um, Hitler a scourge of humanity. And the secretary, who really just was just trying to be a good German citizen, went to the authorities and denounced Mr. Scholl. So they knew the cost that this could take. You know, if their father would be imprisoned for just calling Hitler a scourge of humanity, they could very likely lose their lives by printing and distributing these words. So, okay, we have a situation where these young people are seeing what's going on. They're hearing stories. They're hearing a different narrative than what they've been taught, like you said, as Hitler youth, what they've been trained, what their ideologies, and they're starting to hear disturbing things. And they're believing their sources. And yet they know to speak to the, to speak out what they're hearing and not to just take a stand for themselves, but to distribute this information will come at a cost. What... I'm not even sure how to pose this question because, you know, we all look back in, at history and we think, well, I would have done that too. I would have stood up because now, you know, we, we have the benefit of history to look back and say, yes, they were on the right side of history. But at the time, to even speak out, like you said, it could cost their lives. Um, but even before that, you know, even before you're brave enough to take a stand for your life, you also have to be brave enough to take a stand against criticism, against being mocked, against being labeled, against being ostracized, and, you know, maybe not getting opportunities, maybe being failed out of a class or not getting a job. So why were they so convinced that what they were hearing was true enough to take a stand, if that even makes sense? Yes, and so along with what they heard about the euthanasia program, Hans actually had an architect friend who had spent time in Poland and had witnessed and had known about the mass murders conducted by the SS Einsatzgruppen, where they were rounding up Jewish people and shooting them in ditches. And that was one of the other things that really spurred him on hearing these horrible stories. And he had spent time in, Hans had spent time in France as it was being occupied as a medic. And so they really had seen these things firsthand and they had heard rumors of other things. They'd heard rumors of the concentration camps and things like that. So all of this compiled and coupled with their deep um, Christian faith that all of the members um, had in different ways was the catalyst that said, we have to move from being silently complicit to actively resisting. Okay. And let's talk about that. So now they're actively resisting by distributing these pamphlets. How many did they distribute? They distributed six. They did the first four in the summer of 1942, and then the men had to go spend their summer break um, on the Russian front working as medics. And, and then they, when they regrouped in the fall of 1942, in the early um, beginning of 1943, they wrote and distributed two more. And their last two, they distributed thousands of copies, whereas their others had only averaged about 100 to 150 per leaflet. Okay, so small voices and quotes. So, in, you know, in this in this huge landscape where millions are being indoctrinated, millions are being executed. So you've got this what seems like a tiny voice in the sea of people just not wanting to hear, not wanting to know the truth. What gave them the courage, even knowing, even knowing what the truth is? knowing what the consequences were. What strikes me is, again, I would like to think that I would have that courage, but knowing what the price is, what do you think gave them that courage? I believe that it was their deep faith and the things that they said um, when they were eventually 
effectively arrested and in prison. The things that Sophie said that, you know, such a fine sunny day and I have to go, but what will my death matter if, you know, that millions are awakened and spurred to truth? So I believe that they really felt that even if they risk their lives, the cause of distributing truth and speaking truth to this country numbed by propaganda was deeply worth it to them. Right. Yeah. And you said speaking truth because, you know, obviously we can't listen to this to this story. We can't think about it, read it without thinking about what's going on right now. And, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that everyone listening or everyone thinking about this is inserting, okay, this is my interpretation of what's going on right now. And this is how I'm going to apply the story. And you know, we hear this over the past several years. We've been hearing a couple of things again and again. One is my truth, right? Speak your truth. Speak your truth. Speak your truth. And the other is fake news. And there was a time when you would say those, you know, if you would say fake news, well, everybody knows what's fake, right? And everybody knows what's true. But now it's become so much more subjective. So I'm thinking about you know, they were 70, 80 years ago, about 75 years ago. And today, what is what has changed? Has anything changed? Like, in their day, were they considered fake news? The propaganda would definitely say that they were. And I mean, Hitler was totally um, always speaking victory and Goebbels was always speaking, you know, total victory. And they were saying that victory is a lie. Their leaflets quoted things like every word that comes out of Hitler's mouth is a lie. When he says peace, he means war, things like that. So they were being very bold. And in a way, perhaps some of the people who read those leaflets considered their words fake news. They considered their words too radical, but they were confident that that was true. And I think that today, you know, as we seek God and as we, you know, are use wisdom and seeking out reliable sources, we too can, you know, sift the truth from the fake news and from there kind of form our own opinions and take action. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, you know, what, and, and I keep coming back to this, you know, the courage and the bravery that it takes to even do what is right. You would think, well, if it's right, it's right. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take a lot of bravery to do the right thing. But we have so kind of muddied up even the idea of right and wrong and what is true and what is not true to the point where you know if you can make your case and if you're loud enough well then that's the truth right because even the bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so it's and i'm i'm not saying the bible is confusing but there's a principle there is whatever we hear the most of is what we tend to believe that it's true so that's why scripture i think admonishes us you know, the word of God. So, you know, there is a truth. The truth is the word of God. And if, if what we're believing disagrees with that, if it conflicts with that, that's our litmus test. So I'm going to veer off in another direction uh, with that. So what similarities, if any, what, what do you see? You know, we're talking about, you know, these, again, are young people, college students, tw- young 20-somethings, What similarities do you see between them and maybe people of that age today? You know, because there are people that are standing up for what they believe is right in this hour. So where where do you see the similarities? Well, there are similarities in that they were people today and young people today 
see them, you know, they have this hunger for truth. And I think that that was something that all of the young members of the White Rose had, this hunger for truth and this hunger for justice and this hunger for, you know, you know, righteousness to prevail. And I think that that's something that today people also feel, especially the next, you know, people in today in their 20s, they want, you know, righteousness and justice to prevail, even if some of them, you know, are demonstrating it in different ways. So I think that that's definitely a similarity. Okay. All right. Yeah. So for sure, you know, we, we're seeing that, you know, my generation, I'm the X generation and my generation is kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, you know, let's, you don't hear a lot about X. And I think in some ways it was because we were forgotten the sort of like that me generation of the seventies and even eighties. And then the next generation became the entitled trophy generation. But now we have this generation that's known for their altruism and they want to make a difference and they want to change the world. And it's probably very unfair to peg whole generations um, because there's always heroes in every generation. There's always people willing to stand for the truth. Um, so I agree with you when you say, you know, you see that hunger for truth and justice and righteousness. But let's talk about what do you see maybe as some some differences between what they did, why they did it, and how they did it between the White Rose Society and what we're seeing today? Well, they believed very much much in the power of the written word. Their sister Inga later wrote a book about them um, called The White Rose where she detailed their story and she said that they could have chosen to throw bombs but instead they used the written word. And Their, their weapons were a Remington typewriter and a secondhand duplicating machine mm. and so that was their main method of resistance you know they believe that the written word is powerful and that it has great power and sometimes i think today with so much del- this deluge of information and so many words on social media we've you know maybe devalued the written word a little bit and you know the way that we because we hear so much of it whereas they were you know really studying and you know spending hours working on these leaflets incorporating quotes from Goethe and ecclesiastes into their words and so i think that they they deeply valued the written word and knew the impact it could have on people so the power of the written word yeah yeah and you know what would you say like i don't know i'm putting you on the spot so i'll have you speak for them for sophie or hans or alex or uh crystal what do you think they would have to say to some of their you know if they could have this uh portal time conversation with young people today of their same age that are speaking out for the injustices that that they're seeing that might feel like, hey, words aren't enough. Words aren't enough. We need to take action. We need to do this. We need to even, you know, the violent take it by force. I've heard that even co-opted from Scripture that, hey, you know, we have to we have to take it by force. Do you think that they might have anything to say to this generation about how how you make a change? Well, one of their leaflets um, ended we that we will not be silent, and I think that they really believed that you should not be silent today. That you ha- that we all are given a voice, and that we all can use our voices in whatever sphere God has placed us in. And there's a letter that Hanschel wrote that I found was particularly profound, and he wrote it just a year before he was executed. And he said, "Should one go off and build a little house with flowers outside the windows and a garden outside of the door, and extol and thank God, and turn one." back on the world and its filth. Isn't seclusion Mm. a form of treachery of desertion? And he said, I'm weak and puny, but I want to do what is right. And when I read that to me, that really summed up what they did. Mm. They believed that to seclude oneself from the evils in the world was in a way a form of treachery and of desertion. And though they were weak and though they maybe felt like their voices were small, they knew that they had to do what was right. 
Oh, my gosh. And that is so convicting because I think every one of us, and I, I can only speak for myself, so I will. I mean, that thought has crossed my mind so much. I mean, even just yesterday, I was talking with my husband like, oh, wouldn't it be great to just get a house in the country where we don't have to deal with any of these things? And, and it's real because you, you don't, you know, you don't want to deal with it. And yet we are called, as you said, to speak in our circles, right, to use your voice in whatever sphere God has you in. And it sounds scary, and it sounds daunting, and it sounds almost impossible. And yet, we're not called to do what we can't do. We're not called, if we if we haven't been given a platform of millions, that's okay, because they weren't either, right? You said it was hundreds, and then maybe in the end, a few thousands. But But they were faithful. They were faithful to use their voices. And yeah, that's so challenging. Yes, yes. It's been very convicting for me, you know, just studying their story and reading the letters and the diaries that they wrote and the letters that they wrote um, to their families, you know, shortly before their executions. And it's just so humbling to read, you know, their courage and their bravery and their determination to risk everything for these beliefs. Right, right. And so they, they used the means that they had. They used this printing press and and that was it. So that was what they had back then. So, you know, I think about today, obviously. So today we have we have a lot of media at our access, right? We have Facebook. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. We have, you know, like, so we have all of the Internet. And here's the thing with that. So we have a lot of voices right now speaking a lot of truths, right? Because everybody's got their spin on what the truth is. I'm just going to put this out there. And I'm not putting the pressure on you. You don't, you know. You don't have to answer for everybody, but I'm interested in your take on this or what you think these students take, what their take would be. How do we know which ones to listen to and which ones to tune out? I believe that for me personally and, you know, for my family that... I think that as we seek God in prayer, and I think the closer we are to God, the more that we will know truth. And I think that thinking about people like Corey Tenboom, you know, who took, who was defying her government by hiding Jewish people in her home, but yet she knew that that was the right thing to do. That was what God would have her to do. And so I think that as we listen, you know, to the voice of God, and as we, we use wisdom, you know, Proverbs talks constantly about using wisdom, and as we seek, you know, what our wisdom, and as we re- you seek out reliable sources, what we feel, and then that's ultimately what we can do. Right. Like you said, that listening listening to the voice of God, listening to wisdom that's beyond ours. You know, um, even this morning, I was just kind of reading through the Proverbs, right? And there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, if that right way opposes God's wisdom, it's going to lead not to life. It's going to lead to to death and destruction and all the things that we think we want when we try to go about them in our own ways by seizing it in our own power and meeting destruction with destruction. I understand. I get it. I get why we want to do that because we're exasperated and we're frustrated and and yet, as you say, it, when we rely on our own wisdom, it doesn't lead to life. It's a hard thing. It's it's a hard thing to to process, and yet it reminds me of when Jesus had some hard words for a group of people that he had just done miracles for, and they didn't like what he had to say, so a lot of them left because they thought they were hard words, but Jesus turned to his disciples. He turned to Peter and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, in that moment, who as impulsive as he was, 
he knew. He says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. So, yeah, they might be hard words, and they might run counter to what our wisdom is, counterintuitive to our wisdom, but we know that God has words of life. And that's what I hear you saying. So these students, what method do you think they might use today? Do you think they would stick with leaflets, or do you think they would use any of the platforms that are available to us today? Well, what's fascinating is that they were using and printing these leaflets on a hand crank um, duplicating machine, and you had to do them all individually, so it was hours and hours of grueling work, and then they were typing out every envelope that they were mailing the leaflets by hand, so it was very grueling work, and they were pouring hours of effort into it and sleepless nights, and and so they were working very, you know, diligently and very, they were exhausting themselves really, especially at the end, you know, the harder that they were working, the more that they were really suffering physically from it, and so I believe that today that they would want to expend that same amount of effort. It doesn't take a lot of effort to post a post on social media, and sometimes we feel like when we do that, that's enough. And so I believe that if they were here today, they would want to spend the same amount of effort, the same amount of hours, perhaps using their reach in maybe a different way than than leaflets and, you know, but perhaps just doing more, even, even more than, you know, social media, because that they knew that that is not enough. Just, uh, you know, a few minutes is not enough. Boy, I think you bring up such a good point because don't we feel like a hero? We put that tweet out or we make that Instagram post and, you know, we might even feel like, well, I've crafted it and I've worded it well and I am a social justice warrior and then I go on with my life, you know. And, um, yeah, yeah, what a contrast to putting the effort into not just crafting the words but taking the time to print it. And then, I mean, that that step beyond, which is a pretty big step, not just hitting send on your phone or your computer, but physically going to the places to distribute them. That's where they were risking their, not just their reputation, but their lives. And are we that committed that we would risk our reputation, that we would go and not just to commit equal acts of destruction to get attention, but to distribute information that could open people's eyes so that we could take constructive steps. Yes, absolutely. That's so beautiful and so true. And that's really what they wanted. Their leaflet that they distributed at the university, their final leaflet was addressed to fellow students. And it was a call on their fellow students to rise up and to stand against injustice and to understand the horrors that Hitler was inflicting upon the country and to take action against it. So, so yeah. So, Amanda, so I think, you know, you're you're pretty much in this age group. You're not too, maybe a few years older than some of them or the same age as some of them, actually. So I would just love to hear from you as we just kind of wrap this thing up. You've researched this. You've written about it. You've obviously given a lot of thought to it. What message do you have for for people your age that are that are hungering for truth, that are hungering for justice? I think that ultimately we can never fix what is broken unless we fix ourselves, unless we deal with the ugly hidden places inside that are, that are inside all of us. And so I think that it ultimately in changing the world starts with changing ourselves. It starts with examining our attitudes, not just on a grand scale, but on day-to-day life. And I think that as we do that, we can then be a light and to the world around us. And we can then speak into those hurting, broken places, but we can only do that as we work within ourselves and ask ourselves hard uncomfortable questions and i that's such a good place to land because again that's that's a hard word because it's so much easier to say what's wrong with the world oh i'm gonna fix the world because it's broken and you know what yeah it is broken but you're so right 
it's broken because I'm broken and I need to tend to my own heart. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who I'm, I'm, I have a feeling you probably know who he is and maybe you have done some research on him. But, you know, in the Gulag Archipelago, he, he wrote about it, that the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. And we have to contend with that. Yes, that's a quote that I've pondered often, that quote that you just shared. And I think it's deeply profound and it's one that I think that we should all kind of commit to memory and then commit to our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's a great quotable quote and it's a great one to say, okay, I'm going to voice that out there for you to think about. But if I'm not thinking about it for myself, then I've missed the point. So Amanda, um, let's talk about how people can get a hold of this book. It's such an important story in period. It's an important story period, but I believe that it's an important story for right now in this moment we're in in our culture in our history um how can people get a hold of this book it is available on all major online retailers so you can purchase it and you can find out more information about the book including an excerpt and a downloadable discussion guide on my website amandabarrett.net okay and i highly recommend it um you know i and i'm not just saying that i mean i never just say that but truly I, i just feel so strongly that this is a book for right now so amanda thank you so much for being with us today for sharing your wisdom and your perspective and your extensive knowledge of niagara falls on top of everything um it's been such a joy to have you with us again today Oh, it is always just an absolute privilege and honor for me to share with you and your um, audience, Nancy. Oh, God bless you, and hopefully we'll speak again. I'm looking forward to whatever you come up with next. Oh, thank you so much. Right here, right now. Yeah, I think we may have mentioned this, but it bears repeating that Amanda is pretty much in that same age bracket as this brave group of students that she wrote about. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Just saying. And you will love this remarkable story, not just because of the wonderful way she wrote it, but because it is true and inspiring. And, well, you're just going to love it. That's all. And you can find it and all things Amanda Barrett at amandabarrettbarrett.net. And you can find us, that's right, a whole tribe of misfits at isleofmisfits.com. That's I-S-L-E of misfits.com, where it is our life's mission to seek beauty and truth, to own our awkward, and to love our fellow misfit, one misfit at a time.